I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And the vaccines are here, and they're amazing in both technology and efficacy. But there still seems to be so much pessimism about the future, so much overly cautious messaging, and endless headlines about new normals. And there's a lot of confusion about how effective these vaccines actually are, which ones are quote-unquote best, and what you can actually do after you've gotten them. This is a special episode to get you justifiably excited about the rest of the year and your life going forward. Share it with friends and family who are doubtful or scared, because our guest this week has the credentials and the knowledge required to prescribe some much-needed optimism. Monica Gandhi, MD, MPH, is an infectious diseases doctor, professor of medicine, and associate chief in the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She is also the director of the UCSF Center for AIDS Research and the medical director of the HIV Clinic at San Francisco General Hospital. Her research focuses on HIV and women and adherence measurement in HIV treatment and prevention, and most recently, on how to mitigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Monica, thanks so much for joining us today. Ah, uh, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We could talk about a whole host of issues. As noted in your introduction, you are an expert in quite a few different things, but it's that last bit with COVID-19 and specifically vaccinations that are beginning to roll out not only nationwide, but around the world, which is why I wanted to bring you onto the show today, because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of pessimism that I think is worth countering. So over the next hour, I think it's mostly just going to be a shotgun blast of information for people who might not know a lot about vaccines and the reasons why they should be so optimistic going into the rest of 2021. Great. So to start off, to get people familiar with kind of what the vaccines are, what exactly is messenger RNA, otherwise known as mRNA, and how do mRNA vaccines like the ones made by both Moderna and Pfizer work to prevent COVID-19? Okay, so what mRNA is, is actually the way that you make proteins in your body. So you as a human being have DNA in your chromosome, and then you make mRNA, and then you produce proteins from that, what's called mRNA or messenger RNA. So what these vaccines are is they actually have taken in an isolated way the mRNA that produced the spike protein of the coronavirus of SARS-CoV-2, and they put it in what's called a lipid nanoparticle. They put it inside a little fat container, and then you inject that fat container in your body with that piece of mRNA. And then your body recognizes mRNA. It says, hey, I know how to make protein out of messenger mRNA. I'm going to make a protein. And it makes the spike protein of the virus, just an isolated part of the virus called the spike protein. And that mRNA goes away. It degrades. It goes away forever. And now you have the spike protein sitting in your body and your immune system says, hey, this looks unfamiliar. I am going to produce an immune response against the spike protein. It looks foreign to me. I'm going to make antibodies. I'm going to make some cells and I'm going to, if I ever see this type of spike protein coming into my body again, I'm going to have all the tools to fight it. And so then you produce an immune response so that you will fight that virus if your body ever sees that virus. Now, I don't know if there's a quick way to sum up this next question. It might be too complicated and I don't want to get hung up on it. But for the average person, when they hear something like a protein sequence or a spike protein, the average person may not know what protein means in this context. And in this context, the average person is me. So <laughs> what exactly when we talk about protein in this particular scenario for the average person, what does that mean? 
What it means is that we are entire bodies are made out of proteins and fats and carbohydrates, but the stuff we eat actually, what the virus is made out of is it has some genetic material in it. It has a capsid around it, and then it has a piece of protein that sticks out. And it is what's called a spike protein, that piece of protein that sticks out that binds to your cell if you get exposed to COVID and your body then takes in the virus and you can get sick. We can't actually, it's hard to just put a protein in a body and expect you to make an immune response if we try to inject the spike protein. There is one of the viral candidates, vaccine candidates called Novavax, where you do actually put the protein, the very spike protein in your body, and you raise an immune response. But that spike protein comes with what's called an adjuvant and sort of complicated, and it needs, it needs a friend to help it in. These mRNA vaccines are so unique because they don't produce the protein. They don't actually give you the protein, which is kind of an inefficient way to produce an immune response. They give you the map. The map is the genetic material for you, the human body, to make the protein that you need to raise the immune response to. And then that map goes away. It degrades. It flutters away. It, you know, the mRNA goes away. And you are left with this protein that you have produced with your own amino acids, with your own building blocks that make proteins, just like I just made a protein to make a skin cell, for example. And then you can raise an immune response against that protein because it doesn't look like your skin cell. It looks different. It shouldn't be there. So you raise an immune response, that protein now goes away, and you have a strong immune response that will keep you going for a very long time if you ever see the virus. I think part of what the misinformation that's going around seems to be when people hear things like RNA and they think of it being injected into their body, I think some people out there, especially with the advent of social media and misinformation online, think that something about their DNA or something about their inherent RNA is being changed. Why do you think that stuff like this starts spreading? Is it just merely the layman's misunderstanding of how this vaccine works? Or how can we better, I suppose, allow people to understand this technology so that they don't think that something is being changed within them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's a really good question. I mean, anytime we hear the word genetic material, we've just seen too many movies <laughs> where people get injected with genetic material and things that can't happen, happen, like they change into something. This is not genetic material that in any way can affect your DNA as a human in any way, shape or form. It is a different type of genetic material that you use as a map. It is a blueprint or a set of instructions that you take and you produce protein from that set of instructions. And then the set of instructions flutters away like the map of being blown away. In no way can this genetic material influence or hurt our genetic material. I mean, we will be doing postmortem analysis in the future about how social media influenced a pandemic. I think this could have, this pandemic got politicized, it got complicated, it got social media up, and that didn't happen in 1918. It didn't happen with measles. It didn't happen any other time. So social media does have a role to play in misinformation. And uh, there is, there is, these vaccines do not hurt you and they in no way get into your genetic material. Yeah. And the pessimism doesn't necessarily even seem to be coming just from the layperson, but also from 
medical professionals, people you might call your peers. And I want to get to that later in the conversation. I just want to put a pin in that. <laughs> so we do return to it. Yes. But just to get back to the technology behind these vaccines, I think when the average person thinks of something like the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine and they hear, oh, that's more like the traditional vaccine, like the flu vaccine. So someone can better understand it. How does the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine, right? The more traditional quote unquote vaccine that people are used to compare to something like mRNA. I think you've pretty well described how an mRNA vaccine works, but how can a Johnson & Johnson vaccine also fight the same exact disease, COVID-19? Yes. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that Johnson & Johnson also uses a technology that we haven't used very often. It's not like a lot of people oh. got, yeah, it's not like a lot of people got immunized for Ebola, but it was used for Ebola. Now, it is also kind of novel technology. It's just that it has been used for one other disease, which is Ebola. The traditional way to make vaccines, let's go back to influenza, is kind of an old-fashioned way to make vaccines. You actually grow up the vaccine in chicken eggs. It's why you can't have an egg allergy and then get the what's called the inactivated influenza vaccine. And then there's other types of flu vaccine production where you take a virus and you make it weaker and then you put it in the nose. That's what we used for children, for example, or what they used in the movies against contagion, or it's what we use for measles, mumps, rubella. We don't put it in the nose, but we put it in the arm. These are live vaccines, actually, but they are what are called attenuated or weakened. And two of the vaccines that we have out in the world right now for COVID, Sinopharm and Sinovac, which are both from China, actually inactivate live virus. So there's many, many ways to make a vaccine. The influenza is kind of old-fashioned, which is to grow the virus in eggs. Literally, an, an embryotic chicken egg is, is injected with a live virus, and then now we have some ways to do it cell-free. I actually think that this is going to change our ways of doing flu vaccines. I think that mRNA vaccines are very quickly going to be used yearly for in influenza. And to be honest... The reason these were made so fast is people were already working on mRNA technology for the last 10 years since MERS. MERS was a cousin of this particular coronavirus that caused a much smaller pandemic, but it was a coronavirus. It did lead to some deaths from acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so the technology of starting to make mRNA vaccines initiated from that time. There is going to be, you're going to see mRNA vaccines coming out for other illnesses now. It's such a cool technology and it works so well. So when we look at what we're used to, that's like saying, oh, I like my old car that breaks down all the time. <laughs> the it's okay know. to yeah. update our technology. Yes, it really is okay. And it, it's going to be exciting, I think, to see that mRNA vaccines are probably going to be, maybe not in 2021, but for 2022, I think we're going to be getting mRNA vaccines for our influenza shots. Yeah, I think the future of mRNA vaccines is really exciting. And yes. I, I want to dig into that with you shortly in regards to how it can even be used to fight things like HIV and malaria. But you mentioned how the technology behind mRNA has been around for quite a while. The scientific team at the University of Pennsylvania made the discovery of the modified mRNA technology as far back as 2005. And obviously, it's now being used pretty widely in places like the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, among others. So my question would be is, with the other pandemics like MERS that you mentioned earlier, why is this technology only being used now? Was it a matter of, in the same way that World War II, for instance, or the Cold War, the necessity of needing to make that new technology was kind of a chicken and an egg sort of thing? And that's why mRNA, which was previously just in the, I guess, testing or experimental phases, was decided to roll out in an effort to fight this pandemic? 
Or is it just that it's just now ready for public use? Why has the technology been around as long as it has, but is only now being rolled out? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are three reasons it happened so fast. Like you said, one reason was that the technology was already there. And it's kind of like if it isn't broken, don't fix it. Like it could have been used to replace other vaccines before now because this group and other groups were working on mRNA vaccines for influenza and for measles or for Ebola or for other things. But we have vaccines for all of those. And it's like, you know, if you have a system that works, you're not going to go back and create a system with a new technology if you don't need to. Necessity is the mother of invention. So it wasn't needed. We had an influenza vaccine. We have a rabies virus vaccine. There's this nature paper, actually, that says that these mRNA vaccines have been made against rabies, have been made against Zika, have been made against influenza and multiple cancers. And they are also looking at polio and measles. But we have these vaccines. We, We have these vaccines. So like it wasn't necessary to move the technology forward, even if those vaccines weren't like the easiest ones to make. So that's one reason we had the technology all along. And so that made this happen really fast with Pfizer and Moderna. Second reason is that I deliberately watched Contagion two weeks ago to try to understand it because I'd never seen it. That's a terrifying film. It's, yeah, it's not a, probably not a, it's a good thing to watch at the end of the pandemic <laughs> as we're getting out I of I made it. the mistake of watching it end of March, 2020. No, no. <laughs> probably like the not the right idea. Yeah. No, no, like people, it was awful. And uh, what was interesting was, you know, when they were producing the vaccine or working with the virus, they were in what are called BSL-3 or BSL-4 labs. They were all like suited up and in these labs and they had massive gloves and hazmat suits. And that's what it takes actually to work with a live virus and to produce a vaccine from a live virus. You don't need to do any of that when you have the sequence of the virus and you can make an mRNA vaccine. You just work with pieces of genetic sequence and you don't need any of those biohazard precautions. So it's much easier to work on it. We actually had the identity of this being a coronavirus on January 11th. It's kind of amazing. That was 10 days, right? after January the, 11th, 2020. After the declaration, yeah, 2020, that we knew that WHO said, oh, you sent it to me. It's a coronavirus. I figured out it's a coronavirus. You look at it under electron microscope, it has all those spikes that look like corona, that look like a crown. This is a coronavirus. And by two weeks, they had the sequence of this virus after that, two weeks afterward. So you had the sequence of the virus. Now you can work with bits of material that are safe, which is genetic material. You don't have to go and get special laboratories to make your vaccine. So that was the second reason that it's fast to work with mRNA. It's not dangerous and it doesn't require biohazard safety labs. And then the third reason is let's admit it, the world ground to a halt because of coronavirus. If we're going to throw money at any problem, there's no other problem that was more urgent, which was to get us out of the coronavirus pandemic and private partnerships, Operation Warp Speed, NIH dollars, anything that people did to invest in the vaccine effort paid off. You have a lot of money and you have the whole world watching your every move. You're going to develop a vaccine in the era of 2020 when we have this much great technology. And that's exactly what happened, right? November 9th is when we got the first press release from the first company, which was Pfizer, saying that these vaccines work. I mean, March 11th was the declaration of this being a pandemic. Uh, November 9th, 2020, we got our first report that the vaccines work and they work really well. It's so amazing. It's You can't even make a movie like this. Yeah, I think people really need to grapple with how fast this vaccine was turned around and yeah. how 
amazing the technology is. It's amazing. Now, uh, yeah, and what's kind of amazing is, is if they were to remake Contagion today, that scene where all of them were in the biohazard suits could really be remade with them wearing Friday <laughs> casual. You know, just jeans and t-shirts. Not really as dramatic, but... It's totally yeah. true. And they could be like eating something as they're yep. working. Yeah, yeah you're totally on pizza. right. Yeah. yeah. I guess my follow-up question would be, if it comes down to sequencing something, right? And we've now had this major event in which we've been able to test mRNA vaccines, not only in a controlled environment and lab tests, but then to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. If another COVID-like infection or disease comes around, whether it's COVID or something different, would we need as much of a testing period to roll out another mRNA vaccine? Would the testing period need to be as long or is it just the fact of, all right, here's another spike protein. Let's get this together and just get it in arms. What's the scenario there? Yes, I agree with you that not that I would ever, you know, obviously no one wants another pandemic, but it is true that this technology has now moved things ahead such that, God forbid, we have another pandemic. The development of a safe and effective vaccine will be fast. All the mistakes that we learned from this will be rectified. Things like the FDA, frankly, taking longer than they usually do. What I mean is other governments were really fast about authorization. The UK is my prime example that I think the UK has done just an amazing job of getting these out and getting them into people with the National Healthcare Service. And they also regulated faster, meaning they like stayed up day and night and sort of looked at all the material and they said, okay, this looks safe to me, I'm going to do it. So I think we'll have faster regulation, we'll have faster trials, we'll have people signing up for the trials fast because they know that the technology works and they won't think it's weird. We won't have supply chain issues where who's supposed to make that lipid nanoparticle? Oops, it looks like that's actually hard to make. Let's get this company to get going. That's why we had sluggish rollout in January of the vaccine. We also didn't have enough needles. We didn't have enough syringes to give them to people until we signed the National Biodefense Act. So all of this is going to be rectified. We are going to have an organized pandemic response next time. Don't want there to be a next time. Hope there's not a next time. But I think we're going to have a very organized pandemic response and it will never look like this again. And also, I hope the politicization will never occur to this degree, where people get yelled at for no reason when they're just trying to uh, inform the dialogue as a scientist. The discourse around this has been pretty toxic. Awful, and, that, yeah. and, it seems, and it seems to be a bipartisan toxicity. Yeah, both sides, yes. Yeah. To circle to the UK real quick, because you're absolutely right. In terms of the regulations around getting things approved initially, I think they were much quicker than the US. But I want to get to what's happening right now in Europe with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which was co-developed by the University of Oxford and the British Swedish company AstraZeneca. I'm going to just quote a recent NYT article entitled How the Oxford AstraZeneca Vaccine Works. In the article, it says, quote, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is based on the virus's genetic instructions for building the spike protein. But unlike the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which store the instructions in single-strand RNA, as you mentioned earlier, the Oxford vaccine uses a double-stranded DNA, end quote. So they both seem like they're achieving the same thing, creating spike proteins that prime the immune system to identify the spike proteins in COVID-19. So why is there so much controversy around the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe right now? And even in America, it's been halted. And is the controversy rooted in anything true? I don't think it's rooted in anything true. So, okay. So what this is, to take a step back to explain the AstraZeneca vaccine, because then by doing that, I get to explain the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well, is that it is the genetic material that your body will use to code for the spike protein 
but it's actually the double-stranded DNA, and then in your it gets made by your body's enzymes into the mRNA, and then you're the exact same place that you were with the mRNA vaccine with the piece of mRNA that codes for the spike protein, and then you make the protein. It's brought in by a virus, actually, a, a non-replicating, completely harmless virus that usually causes colds in either chimpanzees or humans, depending on if it's AstraZeneca or the um, Johnson Johnson, but it doesn't replicate in your body. So it can't even give you a cold, but it's kind of this shell. It's kind of the vehicle that brings it in the DNA safely because you can't inject DNA into your body just willy nilly. It will break down immediately. It's the way for it to get inside your body. And then you're just the exact same mechanism. You produce the spike protein and you produce a really nice immune response to the spike protein. The Johnson & Johnson is the one that's authorized here and it works well. The AstraZeneca was the one that was developed, like you said, in the UK, and it also works really well. Now, the interesting thing about it is you mentioned something that I think is really important, real world data, that never in a time in history have we been rolling out an intervention while barely the paper or the press release is dry, giving you the phase three clinical trial results. As soon as November 9th was the first press release for Pfizer, then all of it got into the hands of the FDA with a big document. They looked at it. They authorized it on December 14th. Like a couple of days later, Pfizer vaccine was getting out there. And now we have a ton of real world data. How does it look in the real world? And interestingly, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, they actually look better in the real world than they did in the clinical trials. What do we mean by that? The AstraZeneca vaccine looks amazing in the real world in UK. It's been given to 17 million people in the UK, India, some areas in Europe before they halted it. It prevents after just one dose, there was a paper from Scotland today, it prevents hospitalizations by 94%, 94% after one dose of AstraZeneca. That's actually better than it looked like in the clinical trials. The Pfizer vaccine in the same study uh, reduced hospitalizations by 85%. So it actually looked a little better than Pfizer just in the real world in this Scotland study. Real world data is informing the use of these vaccines. It's looking better than it did, and it also is looking really safe. So out of these 17 million doses given, there were 15 people who had a clot in their leg, and there were 22 people who had a clot in their lung. And some countries in Europe, France, Italy, Spain, and Germany have halted uh, use temporarily of the AstraZeneca vaccine while they're looking into this. It doesn't make sense to me because if you divide 37 divided by 17 million, you get a really tiny proportion. And that rate of clotting is much less than the rate of clotting just in the general population if you didn't happen to have a massive vaccine campaign. Also, this was given to older people first because that's how we distribute the vaccine. So there isn't any evidence that there's an increased clotting rate getting clots from this vaccine. And yet they stopped their vaccine distribution temporarily, these countries, even the WHO is saying, please don't do this. And they're having increased hospitalizations from COVID. So it doesn't make sense to me. And I really hope this gets turned around pretty quickly. To put that percentage into real numbers for people so that they can understand the context in which this vaccine is being halted, 37 cases divided by 37 million vaccines distributed is a point zero 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 one percent chance of developing a blood clot. And I think that we can agree that that is a much, much, much lower chance than your chance of getting COVID if you're not vaccinated. 
Right. Very, very, very good point to put it like that. And COVID is happening, meaning there are increased transmission going on in these very same countries. And there's discussions of lockdowns. And so it just, it doesn't make sense to me. And part of me is hoping it has nothing to do with politics across the continent, but I, I don't know what's going on. And I really hope they change it. So while we're on the topic of percentages, I want to talk a little bit about, I think, how the average person might be misunderstanding effective percentages when talking about the mRNA vaccines and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine variants. So I know some friends here in LA, they'll hear a stat like Johnson & Johnson vaccine is 66% effective at preventing COVID-19. And they'll say, I don't want to get that vaccine because it doesn't work well. So I guess my question to you would be, why are my friends wrong? (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, your friends are wrong. Sorry, but I'm sure they're really nice people. So, no, are, so yeah. it's actually, <laughs> so it actually, I have chosen along with many others, and now that choice that I made is being played out in the real world to look at the vaccine trials first, at the vaccine's efficacy in preventing what got us into trouble with SARS-CoV-2 to begin with, which was severe disease. So each of the vaccine trials, and you can just concentrate on Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson if we're talking about the United States, since these are the three authorized in the U.S., looked at one outcome as a secondary outcome, which is an important outcome, which is that what is the ability of these vaccines to prevent you from getting severe disease, from being hospitalized with COVID or, God forbid, dying from COVID? And the efficacy against that outcome that, again, we wouldn't have even noticed this virus if it didn't send people to the hospital, that percentage is 100% essentially across all three of those vaccines. With Johnson Johnson, again, 100%, 16 people were hospitalized with COVID and seven people died with COVID in the Johnson Johnson trial, and all of them had gotten that salt shot, placebo shot, instead of the vaccine. So no one who was hospitalized with COVID or died from COVID had received the vaccine. You were safe from those terrible outcomes if you had received the vaccine in the Johnson & Johnson trial, in the Moderna trial, in the Pfizer trial, and actually across multiple trials, even, even Novavax and other vaccines that are coming. So that incredible efficacy against severe disease is an outcome that's being played out in the real world, meaning the people right now in the UK who are hospitalized, this is from the Scotland study this morning, these people who are being hospitalized in the UK for COVID, they're ones who haven't gotten the vaccine yet. So most people who've gotten the vaccine are staying out of the hospital. They're not getting COVID and getting sick. So that's amazing. Now, In the Johnson Johnson trial, there were different rates of efficacy against more mild disease, 72% in the U.S. and around 64% in South Africa and 61% in, in Latin America. Those rates were against mild disease. And they were also in the face of circulating variants because the Johnson & Johnson study was done at a time that was later in life when there was more variants circulating in these areas. And they had to look at the outcomes after just two weeks of getting the vaccine because they were in a hurry. They wanted to get this data out. They wanted to get their product approved. They wanted to save lives. And so they looked at between two and four weeks and they still saw some mild disease. I have a feeling that if you wait longer than four weeks, based on the data that you see from the phase one and two trials of the Johnson Johnson vaccine, where you can see that the antibody response and the T-cell response keeps on getting going up even after four weeks, that I think it's going to be more protective if we waited a little longer in the phase three trials to look at how you did than just looking at two to four weeks. But we'll see. 
I do think that right now there are six reasons to get the Johnson Johnson vaccine and you should not worry that that happens to be the one that's offered you. I think you should get the vaccine that's offered you. One is this efficacy against severe disease. Amazing. Two is that it's a one shot and you're done. And if you need a second shot later, when we get the data from the two shot, then people will definitely get a second shot later. Number three is that it, a lot of doses were bought by the United States. So it is going to be increasingly available. Your immunity is other people's immunity, meaning not every one of us has to have perfect immunity. Not every one of us has to get 100% of us have to get vaccinated. Getting to herd immunity means all of us are helping each other by getting vaccinated. The fourth reason is it was tested against variants. So it's the one vaccine that you can say really got tested against variants and is still protected against severe disease against all those variants. The other reason was actually it's, it was studied in diverse populations and also older populations. And I like that because I know it's safe in older people. 34% of people were over 65 years old, many more either African or African-Americans, and also 45% Hispanic or Latinx. So it was studied in populations that were more diverse. And I like studies that were performed in more diverse populations. And then again, the final reason is because I think the antibodies are going to keep on going up over time. So I think you're going to get more and more protection over time. That's great. And before we move on from the Johnson Johnson vaccine, you know, you said it was 100% effective at preventing hospitalization and death. So for someone who got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, let's say, do we know what their symptoms would be if they got COVID, for instance, while they were vaccinated with this vaccine? This is a very good question. And one thing is that there were kind of few outcomes and very few people did get mild to moderate disease. And so we do need to see the full report because what happened is no matter what, we don't actually have a full peer-reviewed publication of the Johnson Johnson. It's all based on an FDA document and what a peer review publication will give us, which I'm sure it's pending at some major journal somewhere. I assume the New England Journal, but I don't know. It will give us the supplementary material. What were those guys' symptoms? What did they feel? Was it a sniffles? Was it a cold? Do they feel more unwell? I can only tell you that none of them needed to go to the doctor. None of them needed medical intervention. But I don't know the range of symptoms that each of them experienced. And that has to be in the study. Wow. Well, that's a key distinction too, because there's a difference between like when I was thinking of hospitalization, I thought like bedridden, but you're saying that they didn't even have to go to the doctor. They were very clear that they said they did not require any medical intervention or treatment. So they didn't need to presumably go and, and ask for even decongestion or whatever. But again, I really, I mean, it's like the reason that COVID is so important, interesting right now to separate all the data is to understand that we are still getting data in real time. It is what? It is March 16th, and we still don't have that full peer review report. And we're going to get all that information soon. So I can't tell you exactly, but right, none of them needed medical help. All right. So I think we've covered the differences between these vaccines and why they're so effective, which I think is great. But I would love to spend the last kind of third of this talk talking about why people should be so optimistic for the future, because I think that there has been so much kind of doom and gloom or, you know, this is a new normal or even once you're vaccinated, you have to have your mask on even around other people who are vaccinated. And I would love to kind of just dispel some of these myths with you over the next 20 minutes. So what can people do with one another? if both people or everyone in a room, let's say, is vaccinated? They can do whatever they want. They can watch TV, <laughs> they can eat food together, they can hug, they can chat, they can clean glasses, they can do whatever they want. So the vaccinations are extremely effective. And the entire point of vaccination is to get back to normal, unrestricted life around each other. I hope vaccinated people are seeing one another and doing whatever they want. 
Here's another follow-up question to that. So let's say you and I are in a room together. You're vaccinated, I'm not, or I'm vaccinated and you're not. What would we be able to do? Would I have to still keep a mask on if I'm vaccinated and you're not or vice versa? Or just to break down for someone who doesn't know exactly how all of that works, when one person is vaccinated but the other person isn't, what's the scenario there? Yes, I think what's really important to just remind ourselves is that I don't know who thought these vaccines wouldn't decrease transmission. It's just that we didn't have the data until the last now two months that they do really massively decrease transmission or your ability to pass it on to someone else. So the clinical trials didn't swab participants regularly to say, oh, could you still have it in your nose even if you are vaccinated? Because they were in a hurry. They said, if you don't feel well, tell me and I will swab you. But now we have real world data. We have massive amounts of real-world data. I actually just made a table on this. And there are seven studies now across healthcare workers, across people who were being pre-admitted to the Mayo Clinic system, for example, for surgery, who've been vaccinated. And your ability to have an asymptomatic infection and to thus pass it on to someone else when you're not feeling well is massively reduced by vaccination, anywhere from 80% to 94% kind of same efficacy rates that look a lot like the efficacy rates for symptomatic disease. And why? Because these vaccines produce IgA, which is a particular form of immunoglobulin that goes in your nose. We just had a paper on that. And uh, immunoglobulins, the particular immunoglobulin that likes to protect what are called nasal surfaces or nasal surfaces is IgA. These vaccines produce IgA. Second is that IgG, which you produce, which is in the immunoglobulin that you keep on hearing about. Everyone's like, what's that antibody? That's the IgG. Those also go into your nose to protect you from passing it on to others. And then we also knew this from primate data, by the way. They tested the vaccines on primates. They were unable to replicate it in their nose if they were re-challenged with SARS-CoV-2 virus. So there was lots of reasons to think they blocked transmission. And now we have the eight studies that they do massively reduce transmission. So my chance in passing it on to you as an unvaccinated person and I'm vaccinated is very low. And in fact, it's why the CDC said, okay, you can hang around unvaccinated people as a vaccinated person, but if they're at severe risk of getting a severe COVID-19 outcome, then keep your mask on in the off chance that you're still holding some in your nose. Now, I don't think you're going to be able to hold some in your nose because one thing I didn't tell you is that say that you even had a little bit in your nose for a small amount of time exposed to someone and you started to replicate it in your nose, there's other data that shows that your viral load in your nose is going to be very low after vaccination because your immune system is going to swoop in and say, hey, I don't want you to replicate that in your nose. And I have the antibodies to prove it. And I have the immune system to prove it. And they're going to stop you from probably passing it on to someone, even if you do have a little virus in your nose. So I think it's very unlikely for me to transmit it to you as a vaccinated person to an unvaccinated person. I think that data is now clear. I think that data has come from real world studies, really well done real world studies where people are swabbed regularly after vaccination. And I'm very comfortable with that data. So I think it's safe for vaccinated to be around unvaccinated. Now, in public, we don't know who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated. I think it's very fair to keep social norms and to keep masked and distance from people in stores until we get to more of a vaccinated community where more of us are vaccinated. But I think in the privacy of your own home, you can unmask and undistance from unvaccinated person. Got it. So just to reiterate, if you have two healthy young people, one of whom is fully vaccinated and the other is not, and they were just at someone's house, it would be 
safe for them to... Yes. Okay. Yes. No masking and distancing in that situation. And even the CDC, who's always more cautious in their messaging, has acknowledged that. So I think that's great. I think that there you see people and scientists, a lot of scientists saying, hey, let's let vaccinated people do even more things. Um, Let's let them travel, which the CDC had said they shouldn't travel. Let's let them do more things. I agree with that philosophy is that the more that you kind of message optimism and tell people how much they're going to get back to a normal life with vaccination, the more that you're going to make other people want to say, hey, I want to get the vaccine. Overcautious messaging right now is not is simply not the way to go. It overcausage messaging before we knew about this virus and before we had the vaccines, every country did it differently. The Japan said, hey, we know mass distancing ventilation work. We can let you go out in public with those. And this country said, let's stay at home. But after the vaccines, the overcautious messaging in my mind is not a good way to go. I think it actually is depressing people a lot. Yeah, and that makes a perfect kind of sense because if you've been following all the guidelines for the entire year, you know, spending time mostly in your home, not really seeing your friends except for in very specific social distance scenarios with masks on, et cetera, et cetera, you're not going to the movie theaters, you're not going to restaurants, and you hear overly cautious, semi pessimistic messaging from medical leaders saying, well, even once you get the vaccine, things aren't really going to change. I mean, that just, even just a layman like me, that just sounds like, the most idiotic marketing I've ever heard. It's idiotic marketing. It's like saying, here is your way to get out of the most miserable thing that I can ever imagine, which is a pandemic. And you're going to catapult back to normal life. And it's so wonderful. And I'm going to just throw a big wet blanket on that. I don't understand it, but someone's got to talk to madmen or something. Like someone's got to talk to people who know how to message. Because clearly uh, a lot of public health messengers and scientists right now don't know how to message. Yeah, they're really dropping the ball, especially with the statistics we know about how effective these vaccines are. They are so effective in the real world. They're plummeting hospitalizations. Every morning I look at U.S. and U.K. hospitalizations. 572 people hospitalized today in the U.K. for COVID-19, 575 so massively down from the 4,310 in January. Wow. It's just, it's dropping it like a stone, as they'd say. The data is so good. The Pfizer Ministry of Health data from Israel, because they made a deal with Israel, so that they put out, Pfizer put out the data in a big press release on March 11th, 2021, and the one-year anniversary of the pandemic. The data is astounding. It looks like it is better, like I said before, than in the clinical trials in terms of efficacy. It basically is preventing 97 to 98% of all severe diseases, 94% of all asymptomatic infection. It couldn't get any better. Unvaccinated individuals are 44 times more likely to develop symptomatic COVID. It couldn't get any better. I feel like I'm in a dream. I'm literally pinching myself because I can't (laughs) believe how good this is. And I feel so grateful and happy about it. And I want to shout it from the rooftops. And I don't have the same ability to do that as someone like the director of the CDC, but I want her to to shout it from the rooftops. This is great news. We need to be way more excited. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just go down a list of potential activities once a person is fully vaccinated and you let me know if they can do them. This is probably going to sound repetitious, but I think it's important. Okay. Let's say I'm fully vaccinated. It's been a month or or more after that shot. Mm -hmm. Can I go inside of a restaurant with my mask off and eat? 
You should wear your mask when you go inside because not everyone's vaccinated. And then when the waiter comes by, just to be polite, it's social norms at this point in this country. And then eat away and go away and go to the restaurant uh, happily and eat as much as you want because you haven't eaten there for a long time. (laughs) Can I go to a movie theater? Yes, go to a movie theater. There will be rules in each movie theater about separation and masking, but go to the movies. I bet it's so much better than Netflix. (laughs) Definitely a bigger screen than the one I have at home. Yes. (laughs) If I'm a teacher, can I go back to school? Yes, yes. That is amazing in terms of the potential for just resuming normal activities, including your work life. So teachers should feel perfectly safe going back to work. They are protected against exactly what got us all into trouble, which is severe disease. And also with all this data that they prevent transmission, they are not going to transmit it to other people. Like they can sit in the break room with their other teachers and happily eat together with their masks off, of course. And though likely for a couple more months as we're getting through this, there's going to be masking in schools. They will not be passing it on to children because they can't transmit after vaccination. So it's a very safe environment after you're vaccinated to go back into any workplace, teaching, retail, doctors, uh, wherever you're working, tech offices, Google, you're safe. Should children under 16 years old be vaccinated? You know, it's a great question. So in this country, the number of children five through 16 who died from COVID-19 is the same as the number of children five through 17 who died of influenza two years ago. It's around 250 deaths, basically, for both. It is not of excess mortality in children. And in fact, There was a Lancet child mortality data paper that got updated in April, August, February 2021. all shows the same thing. Very rare to die or to get sick, very sick from COVID if you're a child. It spares the young. So the purpose of children being vaccinated below 16, because Pfizer is actually approved down to age 16, would be more to protect adults than themselves. And the 12 to 15-year-old trials are finishing up. And then Moderna just said today they're going to test the vaccine in younger children down to six. It depends on where we get with herd immunity. I don't actually think that by the time these trials are trying to enroll younger children that we're going to have enough COVID in the environment because these vaccines are so good that we're going to be able to enroll children into these trials. I I genuinely don't think that. I think what's going to happen, there's going to be so little circulating virus that they're not going to be exposed to COVID to the point that they could even, you could see a difference between a salt shot or a vaccine shot because there's not going to be very much COVID. I think it would have been to protect adults, not children. And I don't think we're going to get there. When I see these decreasing cases and hospitalizations, especially in the UK, which is my favorite place right now because of the national healthcare system, so how fast they've been going, I am seeing that we're going to have very low, if people take the vaccine, we're going to have very low rates of circulating virus. We're going to get to herd immunity. That's fantastic. My last question regarding the children vaccinations before we move on to kind of just the final last segment of how mRNA technology is going to be used to fight other diseases and infections. If all the teachers and staff in a school, let's say a kindergarten or a middle school, are vaccinated, all the adults are vaccinated, can the school go back to normal? Do children still need to wear masks? Does there still need to be social distancing if every adult on campus is vaccinated? 
I don't think they do. I think it could go back to normal with all the adults vaccinated because, again, children are not susceptible to severe disease and the cases are going down so low around the country. For example, in the city of San Francisco, we had eight cases yesterday of SARS-CoV-2 in people's noses, um, and that's a pretty big city. So with those low rates, the child wouldn't even be exposed to each other and the teachers are all vaccinated. I think that It's going to be hard for us to make this leap right now because of the kind of social norms aspect, the pessimism, the doom and the gloom, all that aspect of this. But yes, when all adults are vaccinated around other children, just like the CDC said, vaccinated people can be around other unvaccinated people who are not susceptible to severe disease without masking and distancing. That actually opens up a school with all the adults being vaccinated, going back to complete normal, even as of now. It's going to take a while. It's going to be residual fear and anxiety. And that's why I'm trying to, and you along with me, talk about how amazing these vaccines are to help people understand that. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And there's one more question regarding the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine specifically, because when, when I was prepping for this interview, I asked a couple friends of mine, like, is there a question you would like me to ask Monica considering her expertise in this field? And they all gave me the same exact question. So I have to imagine that it's probably on a lot of people's minds if I got the same question from four different people. How often will we need to be revaccinated against COVID? And do mRNA vaccines require a yearly boost similar to the flu virus? Or does the nature of how the mRNA vaccine works using spike proteins change this yearly equation? I will say that I actually don't think we're going to need it more than once in a lifetime. Wow. And there are four reasons for that. And I'm going to say them really quickly because I think they're really important. One is that there is a cousin of SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV, which causes the SARS pandemic in 2002, 2003. Those people who got SARS, many of them are still alive, of course. And 17 years later from natural infection, they have very strong T-cell immunity. They're still protected 17 years later from getting SARS. Number two, from natural infection, the best paper that there is out there from COVID-19 is from a group in, in San Diego that published this in Science in December 2020, where they looked at your T cells and B cells. These are cellular responses to natural infection. And your T cells, they looked over eight months and they barely budged. They went down just a teeny tiny bit. Their half-life is so long that the authors estimated that their T-cell half-life that you get from vaccination or natural infection looks like as long as you'd get from yellow fever vaccine. And yellow fever vaccine is a vaccine that's given once in a lifetime. Number three, there was a paper just the other day that looked, <laughs> they do all sorts of things during COVID. They actually, after people were vaccinated, they biopsied their lymph nodes and found really strong what are called memory B cells in their lymph nodes after vaccination. Those are long-standing reservoirs of immunity that will last us for a very long time. And number four, I know we're talking about variants a lot. It's okay. The news is going crazy. I think it's overblown. Our T cells that we get from vaccinations will protect us against variants in places where variants are circulating, like Florida, UK, Israel. The vaccinations are bringing down cases just fine. Thank you. And the variants I don't think are going to be a need for us to have to boost immunity. I think that the influenza virus is a very, very different virus. That's why I say look at each other's cousins. It is a virus that is mutates very rapidly. It's an RNA virus that mutates very rapidly. A coronavirus does not mutate rapidly. It has actually a very strong what's called proofreading mechanism. And mark my words, that's how secure I feel. I think we're going to need once in a lifetime. Wow, that's pretty amazing. 
It's pretty amazing. Just for anyone listening, to sum that up, <laughs> you get this vaccine once and you're good, which is yeah. really, really fantastic news. Yes, yes, they're great. These are great vaccines. Like I jump up and down every day. I don't know why other people don't, but I do. Yeah. So before we get to the final question that I ask every guest, I just want to talk about, and this is just so exciting to me, the future of mRNA technology. I was reading a press release from the University of Pennsylvania where the mRNA technology that is being used was initially developed back in 2005. And the press release says, quote, Beyond COVID-19, the mRNA technologies developed at Penn may lead to new strategies for utilizing mRNA, including development of vaccines targeting other infectious diseases, as well as new therapeutics and products for protein replacement, immunotherapy, and personalized cancer vaccines, end quote. And I've also read that the mRNA vaccine trials are being rolled out for malaria and HIV. So what does the future of medicine and disease prevention look like now that we have not only this technology, but also, as you mentioned earlier, all of this darn infrastructure. Yeah, no, I think the future of medicine and hopefully cancer therapy is very bright. I think that any pathogen can be hopefully combated with the use of this rapidly moving technology. And I am very much hoping that there can be personalized tumor vaccines as well, where you take the actual tumor morphology and the tumor genetics and you develop a vaccine that helps you fight those particular cells, those abnormal cells that you have in your body. I'm really, really, really hopeful. We're way past contagion. We are, we are in a very brave new world now with these vaccines. So I, like you, think the future of medicine is bright. That's great. That's great. I mean, I would love to talk to you at length at some other point about not only your research in HIV, but also just the future of disease technology in general. But I want to be sensitive to your time. And I know you've got a lot going on today, and I appreciate you being with us. So I just want to put the final question that I put to everyone. We are limited as individuals in all kinds of ways. We're limited in our time, (laughs) as in today, our energy and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else or every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There's not enough hours in the day, Monica. So is there someone or a group of people in your life who you know personally or just in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Yes, it is people living with HIV. Even though I'm an infectious disease doctor and infectious disease trained at heart, what got me into infectious disease was HIV. And they are People living with HIV anywhere are struggling with the persistent feeling of stigma that they experienced at the beginning of the HIV pandemic because we're in, we have another pandemic and we happen to message unsympathetically and unkindly about keeping people away from each other and not kindness about people's loneliness and mental health during this pandemic. And my message is to everyone living with HIV, I'm so sorry that you had to go through more than one thing in a lifetime. No one should have to go through two. And I will do anything in my power to help message that we're getting out of this pandemic so that you can go back to having one thing to worry about and not COVID-19. And I'm sorry for all that you've suffered through this. Well, thank you, Monica. Again, thank you for your knowledge on this subject. Thank you for your advocacy. And thank you, most of all, for your optimism. And I'm really excited to go into 2021, especially after having followed people like yourself on Twitter, who I think are getting out a message that really needs to be heard by everyone. So thank you again for your work. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks again. 